Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Snowcast. I'm John Snow. It's very nice to be back. And this week, I'm joined by Professor Roseanne Kenny. Roseanne is an expert in ageing who has over 35 years of clinical and research experience. She's a professor of medical gerontology at Trinity College Dublin and the director of Mercer's Institute for Successful Ageing at St. James's Hospital. Roseanne is also the brains behind TILDA, a groundbreaking research study into ageing in Ireland, which has followed over 8,500 adults aged 50-plus since 2009. She published a best-selling book last year called Age Proof, The New Science of Living, A Longer and Healthier Life. And she's passionate about sharing what she's learned to change our experience of and attitude towards ageing. There is so much to talk about today. But before we begin, just ask yourself, how old are you feeling right now? And how do you feel about getting older? This conversation could well change both answers. Roseanne Kenny, can you tell me what gerontology is and why you were drawn to a career in this field? Well, gerontology is the study of ageing, and medical gerontology is more the clinical component of that. Why I was drawn to it, I was working in what was then the Hammersmith Hospital in London, now part of Imperial, and um, I just found that there was so little research in older patients. It was assumed it's your age, dear, and that there wasn't very much that could be done. And indeed, when I explored it, there was very little research in that area. In fact, most of the research studies stopped at 60 or 65 in terms of recruitment. So it seemed to me that there was a huge opportunity and a low-hanging fruit there for a young researcher 
And also I loved that. I really enjoyed that age group because I enjoyed when I met a patient of, say, 90, putting their whole life course into context rather than just dealing with the chest infection of a 90-year-old. So all of that together attracted me to the field, and it's now really a really popular field for young doctors. You don't like the term elderly. What do you prefer to say or do patients prefer to hear? Yes, so the important thing is that people don't like being referred to as elderly. And there are a number of studies to support that. The term that people as they get older have chosen is older person. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I think that's very reasonable. So I try to use that word insofar as possible. Why does a positive attitude to ageing even matter from language and representation to an individual's own mindset. So this is one of the more remarkable observations from recent research, I think, that your attitude towards how you age actually influences cellular aging, the biology of aging. Um, and if you reflect a little bit on this, I think, John, you'll think of people you know who you would consider to be superagers who have aged well, and they, they have a positive attitude. They're rarely miserable or pessimists, or very optimistic. And we've shown in our own research, and of course many others have also replicated this or shown this, that if you have a positive attitude and perceive yourself as younger than your chronological age, i.e. the number of candles on your birthday cake, then you actually have a slower pace of physical aging and brain health aging. And that's pretty remarkable stuff. And more recently, we've shown that the biological markers of aging, like the clocks that we use to measure cellular aging, are also slower in terms of the pace of aging in people who have a positive attitude. So we could and should think ourselves younger. Absolutely, if you can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I had a, recently a 94-year-old who bounced into clinic and we sorted her clinical issue, which was pretty minor, really. But I mean, her whole attitude was so positive. And I said, what's your secret? And she said, I love a Malibu. And I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's come recently in life. She, certainly in Ireland, 90 years ago, there weren't Malibu drinks. So that's what I mean by a positive attitude. Always open to curiosity and change and variety. Well, let, let's continue on a positive note then. I mean, mm. studies like your own found that life's happiness curve is U-shaped. So mm. it's rising back up after middle age. That's extraordinary. Yes, it is extraordinary, but it's actually consistent through most of the studies that we have found. Quality of life continues to improve after the age of 50, and it peaks on average around 78 to 80. Now, some people it peaks later, some slightly earlier. The determinant of when it starts to slide again is how much physical illness you've got, what we call morbidities, like arthritis, like heart failure, like kidney disease. But, but life gets better after 50. Now, that's been attributed to a number of different factors. Certainly for this current generation, we're talking about less financial worries, more time to do things maybe that you've always wanted to do but never had the time to do. Retirement, some people look forward to retirement. Choice, perhaps you have more choice. And we know that all of those factors make for a better quality of life, and they're probably more available after the age of 50. But certainly consistently, particularly in Europe, quality of life continues to get better after 50. I can vouch for that. 
Yeah. I've experienced it myself, am experiencing it. Yes. That upward curve is impacted when ill health kicks in. So mm. you want to reduce that period. Mm. Is that the main focus of your work? So the whole purpose of not just mine, but everybody in this field, predominantly, almost everyone, there are a few mavericks, mm -hmm. but our whole purpose is to compress the period of time towards the end of life that we spend with any illness, what we call extension of healthy lifespan, not extension of lifespan. So not that we live a whole lot longer, but experience, you know, a lot of comorbidity at the end of life, a lot of disability at the end of life, but rather to compress that period of disability, which for most people is pretty inevitable. At the moment in the UK, we spend one fifth of our life with some level of disability. Now, that's an awful lot, and it's nearly all at the end of life. So the aspiration is to reduce that right down to the very minimum. So you're independent and therefore have a better quality of life right to the last moment. You said that when you treat a patient, you never ask them their age. So how do you come to an assessment of someone's biological age? Well, I described the 94-year-old, I happen to know she was 94, <laughs> who bounced into clinic. I mean, mm. she was biologically at least 20 years younger. I know that because we examined her. I know what her mobility was like. But also there are a number of other markers that we could use blood tests. Generally speaking, however, we don't have a single test that, that can tell me exactly what your biological age is. It's usually a measure of a number of different factors. And also, at the moment, there's a lot of deviation on each side of that. So you've got the majority of people of a certain age have these biological factors, but then there's huge variation each side of that. So biological aging, actually, and the pace of aging starts very early. In one study in, in New Zealand, in young people, all who were aged 38 at the time, they started measuring their biological age. So chronological age, candles on birthday cake, 38. But some were behaving biologically, like 20-year-olds, whereas others at age 38 were behaving like 50-year-olds. And that behavior with respect to biology was apparent in almost every physiological system, every organ that the researchers looked at in terms of clinical testing. So it seems to be consistently extensive once it happens. And it, it does start earlier. And the drivers in, in those who had had a faster pace of biological aging were depression in childhood or adverse childhood experiences. This is why I said earlier on, it's so important to understand the context of where your older person has been throughout their life. Or smoking early for the participants age 38 or taking drugs or excessive alcohol. They are poverty. They were the factors which drove early biological aging. Can you tell me in the very simplest terms what an epigenetic clock is and how it helps identify the factors and behaviours that affect biological age. So recently, and it's quite recent, when we're talking about biological ageing, we are actually able to include in those equations a thing called the biological clock or epigenetic clock. Now, it's a type of genetic analysis, but it's not our genes. It's not our... Our genes are fixed. And our genes are, are not responsible for most of why we age. But there are bits stuck on to the 
genes called methylation sites, CPG sites, which are not fixed. They're dynamic. So they can almost close in and not be apparent and external or open out and be available externally. And what they do is they send messages throughout the cell for the cell's metabolism and production of energy. Now, we can measure those sites, and those sites appear to be very closely aligned with the morbidities we were talking about and also with death rates. So if those clocks are indicating that you're aging more quickly, in the majority, death occurs earlier. I would caution, this is an incredibly exciting capacity that we have, and it's a very active area of research, not just for ourselves, but for many groups. And there are lots of different clocks now, and even clocks specific to organs like your heart clock, your muscle clock. However, as with everything at this point in time, we're looking at averages. So you cannot say for an individual, "Mm, that's your clock, you'll be dead in two years, or that's your clock, you'll be alive in 40. We don't have that level of accuracy yet. You can give rough estimates at the moment, and probably not more accurate than a combination of other physiological measures we've been using for some period of time and are quite valid, like how strong your lung expiratory rate is, VO2 max, your baseline heart rate, your overall blood pressure, HDL, LDL cholesterol, ratios, etc. So the things that we traditionally know predict mortality, if we combine those factors, they're at this point in time probably as good as most of the clocks at predicting mortality. But look, there's so much science and resource going into these clocks at the moment that I have no doubt that they will become much more accurate in terms of prediction. Now, there are ethical issues about that right, with respect to that. I mean, do you want an insurance company to have a very accurate clock of your, your measure of your biological clock? Definitely not. No. <laughs> the only good news, I think this, the good news is, and there have been some recent publications in this vein, is that there are intervention trials which have shown reversibility of the clocks. And there may be the things we're going to come to talk about, the environmental factors we can influence. But even as early as this morning, I read an early paper on women and intervention and showing that with the interventions, they were actually able to decelerate the pace of aging as measured by the clocks. So I think that's possibly bad news for the insurance companies because they're modifiable and we can turn them. At the beginning of that answer, uh, you, you suggested that, I think you suggested that genetics don't actually determine the length of your life. Mm. So genetics determine the length of your life about 20% of uh-huh. that estimate. Or some studies, 30%. We know this from identical twin studies. Their genes are exactly the same. But then the factors which predominantly influence how long we live our lifespan and our healthy lifespan are what what are broadly termed environmental factors. But they're things like diet. I'm sorry, I know it's the old, boring old thing of diet again, but, you know, it's so important. Exercise, sleeping, stress, etc. They're the factors which we have control over, but which actually control 80% of how long we're going to live. How interesting. Mm. And they're modifiable. We can manage them, which is great news, I think. Would you say that this conversation is for all ages? Younger listeners shouldn't postpone making changes and older listeners shouldn't think 
they've left it too late? That's a great question because so many, I meet people and they say, oh, I enjoyed your book, if you don't mind me saying this on there. I enjoyed your book. I gave it to my parents. <laughs> they love it. And I'm thinking, well, I hope you took on board yeah, what about some you? of it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've told you about the 38-year-olds and their biological aging. All of the factors, the environmental factors, which influence the process, some of them begin in early childhood. So the answer to your question is absolutely yes. The earlier you start, the better. But the other important message is it is never too late. Your study, TILDA, T-I-L-D-A, launched just a few years after Sardinia was named as Mm. the first blue zone. Mm. Can you explain what these zones are and why they've been of such great interest to your field. So TILDA stands for the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging. Um, And what we do is we follow a randomly selected population sample of people aged 50 and over. We apply very rigorous testing, takes up to five hours at max, every two years to the same people so that we understand the process of aging at a population level. We are now one of 26 studies worldwide doing the same thing. And in England, we have the English Longitudinal Study on Aging. And we're working with our colleagues in Scotland on a study. And Northern Ireland have also a study, for example, on these isles. Now, the value of that is we do testing of everything. Health, obviously. Blood samples for biomarkers, obviously. But also, not just physical health, mental health brain cognitive function, looking for early evidence or signs for dementia or predictors of dementia, and also the economic status of an individual and their social environment, because that's so important for health. So that's what TILDA is and those repeated measures. Um, The Sardinian studies have actually very much informed the fabric of these longitudinal studies on ageing because it was noted that in those blue zones, Sardinia is one, Loma Linda, California is another, an Adventist group, um, Costa Rica, another, Nicoya, Okinawa off the coast of Japan, and Icaria, Greek island, and Sardinia. They're the main blue zones. And they have validated records that the populations in those zones live disproportionately longer Hmm. than their counterparts on mainland or nearby. So researchers have been very interested in this for a long period of time. Um, As I said, they have validated that this is the case because there were previous cohorts described long-lived and it transpired that their birth records were not accurate. But these are. And they're living longer for... Now we know a number of the factors that we too can live longer if we we adopt. All of the things we talked about, like sleep, like physical exercise, like good diets. But the most notable thing, I think, from my observations, and I've only visited Sardinia, is their social engagement, social connection. They use communities and social engagement and networking and and fun and laughter with friends and colleagues to de-stress as a de-stressing ritual regularly, daily, and they've very egalitarian societies pretty much, and also not infrequently a number of generations living in one household. So for all of those reasons, they've become a very uh, important focus. But for them, this is all subconscious, isn't it? This is their daily way of life. Yeah. So they don't know that they're doing this. No, and we probably did all of this too at one stage, (laughs) but we've evolved. And actually, we've evolved, unfortunately, 
in Western cultures, which are so-called sophisticated, to th- that we have a very high prevalence of loneliness and social isolation. We don't have that community engagement anymore. And even the, our buildings, our infrastructures, the macro infrastructure and micro infrastructure, they're prone to isolating individuals mm. rather than encouraging community. This mention of blue zones, where, yeah. where people live to extraordinary ages mm. and the rest of it, is fascinating because I went to Loma Linda, which yes. is one you mentioned. I saw that, yes. And I just couldn't work out what was happening. I mean, was I looking at something very, very unusual? Or, Of course, they themselves will talk about faith and the effect of that rather than any interesting aspect to where they live. So what all of the blue zones have in common, including Loma Linda is plant-based diets, predominantly, and also some sort of a community ritual, which brings people together. In the in that case, it's prayer. So, so your point about faith is very important. Actually, we, we've looked at this because the age group in Ireland that we're studying, some of them would actually have a very strong beliefs. And certainly practicing religious rituals does seem to buffer people against mood changes, particularly depression. Mm. It also acts as a tool to counteract loneliness or social isolation. And it's very difficult from a research perspective, although we tried, I think we failed, to separate the effect of belief and the religious experience from those other influences which we know are very good from a mental health and therefore a physical health perspective. But there's no doubt that religious communities are healthier communities. Mm -hmm. Of the nine lifestyle characteristics discovered in Blue Zones, there's been much talk about diet. What is the optimum diet and what should we try to avoid? So every day you'll have a different recommendation with respect (laughs) to diet in the press. It's very difficult. But there is a consistent message which I think is important and which I myself adhere to and and use. And the the plant-based diets predominantly do seem to make a difference. And certainly in the societies which engage in predominantly plant-based diets, they are longer lived and healthier long lived. The Mediterranean diet in millions of people, I think randomized control trials of up to 13 million now across the number of decades, consistently show that it's associated with less heart disease, which is the commonest killer, and less stroke disease, etc. So so certainly a Mediterranean diet has a lot of evidence to support it. But how extraordinary, because it, it indicates that the PR for meat and all the rest of it has been so effective that that's all been wiped out in this country. The one thing I I don't think that meat has been studied sufficiently and objectively. That's my own view looking at the literature. The WHO made a statement a number of years ago, and I think this has predominantly influenced what you've just cited, that um, red meat ingestion was associated with a higher rate of cancer. And I know there are a number of ongoing studies now looking at this again. We've evolved as carnivores. Mm. So it's a little bit counterintuitive that red meat would be that bad for us. However, as carnivores, we wouldn't have, I would hazard a guess, I never was a cave woman to my knowledge, but Mm. I would hazard a guess that an actual meat kill was fairly infrequent compared to the access to berries and fresh Mm. fruit and Mm. whatever vegetables were available. So I think that Mediterranean diet actually probably reflects that, as do the blue zones. They don't exclude red meat, but it's about twice a month, three times a month, and it's not taken in huge quantities. Red meat isn't the real issue here. From all of the knowledge that I have in the context of diet, 
ultra-processed foods are lethal. And that's where I'd like to see the PR putting their weight behind now, because the fact that 55% of us eat ultra-processed foods is shocking. And actually, ingestion is often dominant in the very groups in society that you're trying to target for longer healthy lifespan who don't have longer healthy lifespan. Do you know healthy lifespan in Blackpool is almost 55 years. In the Orkney Islands, it's almost 77 years. That's on this island, that level of disparity in healthy lifespan. So drill down into that and say, why is that? The social circumstances, but also the community circumstances, as far as I can ascertain, for those two communities are very different. And so your conclusion is? I think Mediterranean diet, stick with that. And then we know that uh, the microbiome is now gaining dominance in terms of being very influential. This is this gut organ that we have, Mm -hmm. very influential in lifespan and in biological aging and all of the factors we talked about, like depression, cognition, dementia even, um, and of course, physical health. And the microbiome responds well to probiotics that you get in, say, live yogurt and also fermented foods, Mm. kimchi, that sort of thing. So if you can, I can't stand the taste of sauerkraut, Mm. but I spoil myself with a good pork sausage and sauerkraut. And the pork sausage, of course, is ultra-processed, but I take loads of sauerkraut and I can bear eating it if I have the pork sausage. So there are ways around it. This is all getting a bit intimate. (laughs) (laughs) With supplements, there are dizzying choices and claims. Mm. Do you take any specific supplements yourself or is it better to get everything we need from our food? Okay, so let me tell you about these recent studies which have shown apparent reversal, deceleration of the clock by two and a half, three years. Um, What did they do? Food-wise, there were supplements. So they took polyphenols like resveratrol and fesatin, quercetin, um, also vitamin supplements, vitamin D, vitamin C and vitamin A, um, and then a very good Mediterranean diet with fish and liver three times a week. And then that was coupled with not just the dietary changes, but regular exercise um, prescriptions, prescriptions for better sleep and de-stressing rituals every day. So the studies showed a deceleration in the aging process at a cellular level. However, it's very hard now, looking at the data, to disentangle which of those elements, diet, sleep, de-stressing, exercise, were dominantly influential in those beneficial changes. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, obesity is a global epidemic with serious health consequences for the individual and society. Is eating the Blue Zone diet and moderately enough or should we all be fasting? There is good literature around fasting. Now, when we talk about fasting, it's caloric restriction and it's not eating for periods of the day such that we change our biochemical balance from being predominantly glucose-based, having sugar in our systems, to having for a period of time ketones in our systems. Now, that's a bit of maybe heavy biochemistry, but I'll take a step back and explain how that happens. We use for energy production sugar, glucose, and we need a certain amount of that from carbohydrates to produce energy because all we are about actually is energy production and getting rid of the toxins from energy. Mm -hmm. That's all our cells do. However, excessive glucose is toxic of itself. And if you can switch the biochemistry in the system for a period of time to a different source of energy, which ketones will give, it's much better physiologically. That was observed in animals, first of all. And I have pictures of 20-year-old rhesus monkeys. Um, one half of the group were given their normal diet for that 20-year period. The other half were not. Their dietary intake from birth was reduced by 40%. The half that had the calorie restriction like that from birth, they lived a third longer. But not only that, they were much less likely to get heart disease, because monkeys get heart disease, arthritis, dementia, weak muscles, and lose their hair. So by fasting, they actually had a decelerated biological aging process. So that's where all of this thing about fasting started, and it has translated into human studies. Now, it hasn't been shown yet in human studies, because this takes a long time, and it's very difficult to do these randomized control trials, that it absolutely extends lifespan. Obviously, you have to follow people for a long period of time to determine that. But it has been shown that it changes what we call the intermediate markers, the ones we've been talking about, like those disease states, like the clocks we've been talking about. It has been shown that it positively influences those markers. So there's very strong circumstantial evidence to support it, although not definitive. I myself do fast because I'm very persuaded by the data. Well, we've long been told that exercise is important for our physical and mental health. But rather than allowing ourselves to ease off a little as we age, you recommend that we increase the amount of exercise we do each year. Mm. Yes, and I stand by that. <laughs> well, and Be I do it, I yes, must say. Yes, <laughs> good, because there's a perception there. We kind of come back to how we started the discussion around attitudes. But there's an attitude that as you get older, you should be doing less. Actually, after the age of 40, we lose the number of muscle cells, but also the density of the muscle cells we have, particularly type 2 skeletal muscles, the ones we need to move. Mm. 
And we can counteract that loss. That loss is part of the aging process. But it just means that to counteract it, you have to work harder than you did up to the age of 40 to make up for the natural loss. So that's why we should be doing a little bit more. And we should certainly introduce resistance exercise programs. It's not enough to walk briskly. It's great to walk briskly for cardiovascular outcome, but not for resistance programming. For that, we do need weights or bands or Pilates or something that you're building muscle and different muscle groups per se. And it isn't just about cardiovascular health. And it's not just about preventing falls and frailty, all of which it does. But actually, exercise liberates cytokines called myokines, which are anti-inflammatory. So by reducing chronic inflammation, which we think is what causes the aging process or certainly underpins it significantly, they actually decelerate the process and also help to prevent against infection. So there's a whole load of reasons because we're more susceptible to infections as we get older, why we should be exercising more year on year after 40. And what's the best way to start out if you've only ever done aerobic exercise? Well, if you can, I think it is important to access a gym, if you can, and get a trainer to take you through at least once the equipment. Mm -hmm. You'll get a great buzz from it afterwards, and it is the probably the best way. Now, there are kind of secondary things recommended, like up and down the stairs is good at a, at a pace, carrying something heavy when you're going up and down the mm -hmm. stairs, relatively heavy, and increasing the weight, using elastic bands, which is part of the process with Pilates. I would strongly advise not to do this, any of this on your own at home. First of all, you'll get bored, stiff. Mm. And secondly, it won't be under some level of supervision so that you can progress it appropriately. And thirdly, if you do it with a group, for example, Pilates classes or weights classes or whatever, you've got the community engagement as well. And so that, that's a great feel-good component coupled with the exercise. What about exercise incorporated into another pastime, say gardening? Absolutely. And, you know, for a whole load of reasons, gardening is very good. And I cover this in the book. There's even a mycobacterium, a bacteria in the soil, which is antibacterial, which is beneficial for our immune system. So that's one hypothesis. But gardening has been shown in a number of studies when compared to some other activities to be hugely beneficial to all of the biomarkers we use to indicate happiness, quality of life, and um, contentment and de-stress. It's great for de-stressing. It's also a good form of exercise. When uh, Professor Sophie Scott was on talking about brain health, she emphasised the importance of socialising. In your book, you identify multiple benefits. You write that our friends and relations literally keep us alive. Can you tell me more? Yeah. So in a very large uh, meta-analysis of all of the studies which looked at the benefits of social engagement in, in well-structured ways, it was clearly shown that the benefit of engaging with friends and relatives that you get on with, I would caution, frequently was as important, and the quality of your relationships was as important as smoking and exercise and cholesterol to heart disease. And as I said before, that's the commonest cause of death in Western culture. So it's actually a pretty good metric for benefit. It was as strong as that 
the benefit. When I was visiting Blue Zones, I met a retired Californian woman who volunteered at a food bank and a retired Japanese farmer who looked after his great-grandchildren. Both were very happy and healthy, so this sense of purpose can really make a big difference to how we age, right? Mm -hmm. Purpose matters, and super-agers, healthy agers, almost all have a purpose in their lives. Now, frequently, when I say this, the response might be, but I can't, I've retired. My work was everything to me. I had to retire, and now I feel aimless. I feel invisible. I feel I have no purpose. My response to that is we can actually generate purpose from almost anything, as long as you are deliberately attributing what you're doing to having a purpose. You get up in the morning, you make a list of what you're going to do. But an extension of that is, as you've beautifully highlighted, volunteering. Mm -hmm. Our society is desperate for volunteers. And volunteering, giving, there are experiments to show that when you give, different areas of the brain light up, beneficial areas for cognitive function and mental health, compared to when you do something just for yourself. So it's it's good for you mm-hmm. to volunteer, but it's it's also very good in the context of having a purpose. Creativity also affords purpose. And it's worth reflecting on engaging in creative pursuits as a means of developing purpose. Are there any social engagement initiatives that give you joy and that you'd like to see rolled out far more widely? So I've been talking about this for years. And two years ago, I thought... I go to the gym very frequently. I do all of that sort of thing. I exercise a lot. I love cold water swimming and I do it with with groups, etc. Easily done in Ireland. Very (laughs) easily done. You can't escape it. But I wasn't actually doing anything creative. And I had been quite creative in in school. So I joined a choir recently and I just love it. I love the creativity and Mm. the performance Mm. associated with it. And it's been well shown that creative activities like that are I did it at the other end of the equation. I was a chorister in a cathedral choir. And it was, I mean, there's never been anything like it since. Yeah. Incredible. I can speak to it. (laughs) Join again. (laughs) (laughs) And now, you aim to influence policy Mm. through your research. Mm. And the smoking ban illustrated just what legislation can achieve. Mm. What new policy would you most like to see? So we have influenced policy, and I'll give you some examples of what we've been able to do. Because of the research and the the very clear evidence base and metrics behind that, we have been able to persuade our government in Ireland to slightly slow down the traffic signalling times And we were able to give the metrics to say, if the distance between the traffic lights is X and you slow the signaling, in other words, from amber to green, by another two seconds, X percent of people over a certain age more will be able to cross the road because we had done what we call a magic carpet as part of our tests. And we were able to look at gate speed. Mm. And then we were able to look at gate speed when you were carrying something. And that gate is walking, walking speed when you were doing mental arithmetic. And therefore, we could give them all of these possibilities that they could build into or factor into that. So so they have done that. They've slowed it. But of course, that doesn't just help people over 80 or 75. It also helps, you know, mothers with 
kids and buggies and coming out of school, etc., crossing the road. So it's afforded for very slight changes, which weren't noticed. We've never had complaints and government have not had complaints. It's freed things up. That's one example of how the science can actually change policy. Interesting. I mean, do you think that governments need to be less libertarian then and take a more proactive, long-term strategic approach? To, to health? I absolutely do. I mean, if, if they were to get community right, they would get health right. You know, this community engagement we're mm. talking about, I think that would help a, a lot with health. And you need to be creative around that. It's not necessarily short-term wins. That's the issue from a political perspective. So somehow we need to separate the politics from the policy and accept that the policy will be longer term gains. Many baby boomers will live 25 years longer than their parents. What age could the average alpha expect to see? And will the gap between men and women get smaller? So we started the, 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 your last point there. The gap between men and women is getting smaller and it will probably continue to narrow. That's because cardiovascular disease, which was the early killer for men, is actually so much better managed now. Although recent data is showing this is plateauing out a little bit. The projections are, the epidemiological projections, that people could live who are, you know, between 10 and 20 today could live to... 120, 130, 150. Now, having said that, the only sure data we have with respect to that is the longest lived female, who was a south of France female, who lived to 122 years and 163 days. So we know that we have the ability to live that long. So that is possible. So I buy 122 at the moment. <laughs> they could expect probably more will. However... Surely optimism has just entered your science. I was just about to say, however, there is a really good recent book by the Nobel laureate health economist Angus Deaton, Scottish, and his wife Anne Case, now both in Princeton, called Deaths of Despair, showing the accelerated early deaths in the USA. And... They were able to look at debt certs. Debt certs in the USA is the only country that has education on debt certs and show very clearly that early debts and ill health were directly attributable to not having a Bachelor in Arts in the USA. I do think, therefore, another policy initiative should be around either stigma associated with not having a degree or ensuring that everybody has the capacity for that level of education as a minimum. Interesting. Your book has brought you out of the hospital and lecture theatre into the world to share what you've learned. Are you enjoying this phase of your career and whatever next? <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm actually <laughs> loving it. I'm loving communicating the science. And I'm also loving the challenge of having to reflect deeply on the science. I've published many, many scientific papers, but it's quite different to take that evidence and then translate it into something that is much more distillable to the general public. That's a great challenge for me and I so am enjoying it. Well, we've enjoyed <laughs> talking with you. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank Wonderful. you. Wonderful. That was Professor Roseanne Kenny. She's so good at demystifying the science behind ageing and I could have talked to her for hours. If you'd like to find out more, there are links to Roseanne's book, her Tilda Research Project, and my Channel 4 documentary about the Blue Zones, 
in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.